Welcome to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. I'm Kevin Prang. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose, to create a better life for all residents of the St. Louis region. We work at the intersection of race, economy, political power, gender, and the structures of oppression at work within us individually, within our organization, and within the community. We are working towards building people's control of the government, building community control of the economy, expanding the public sphere, and creating structural racial equity. Today, my guest is Reverend Dietra Wise-Baker, who is the organizer for MCU's Break the Pipeline campaign. Uh, and today we're going to continue our, our discussion about youth in detention during the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome, Reverend Baker. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me. This past March, uh, the MCU Juvenile Justice Task Force and the Missouri State Public Defender's Children's Defense Team co-authored a letter calling for the state to address the health and safety issues of incarcerated youth during the COVID-19 pandemic. Remind our listeners what we were getting at and what we were calling for in that letter. Yeah, I think the, the basic premise is that we know that in detention centers and jails and prisons that COVID-19 uh, basically is going to spread. And so we were uh, writing to preempt um, and ask for sort of the emergency plans for the detention centers and asking for all kinds of measures for release um, and not to admit new youth into the system uh, while we deal um, with this uh, pandemic. And so we were, we were able to get that letter out uh, to the detention centers and to the Division of Youth Services for the state of Missouri. And then on May 7th, we sort of backed, that up, uh, backed up the letter with an action outside the Department of Youth Services Center at Hogan Street to demand a response to that letter. Um, and what kind of happened from there? Yeah, I would. I guess it's important to say the detention centers did respond and we had a meeting with them and um, they agreed and were in the process of releasing about a third of their populations and implementing many of the items in the letter uh, to get their populations down um, around COVID-19. They were just as concerned. We didn't hear anything um, from the Division of Youth Services and so that's why we had the action. Um, and so pretty much after that, that action, we didn't hear anything after that either. Uh, the next thing that happened is a, uh, um, an article came out that shared that the health department had been doing some testing, and we believed that that testing was um, prompted uh, by our first protest that the testing happened, and the and the results of those of that testing was published, knowing at that point that more than half of the kids in that facility were COVID nineteen positive, along with some of uh, the staff. We teamed up actually with the the DYS Workers Union CYA six three five five as the workers are concerned. Um, about being in there. Um, and obviously we were concerned about the kids um, in there. And so we came together and did another protest and finally did get a meeting with the Division of Youth Services. Okay, so there are a couple things in there. One, uh, the Division of Youth Services, the, the Missouri State Agency was the one that, that we were having a hard time connecting with, but others, it was at the city and the county were actually starting to make some steps? Right. They, they, we had a meeting with them within a week or so after the letter, and they were already in the process of doing some of those things. The Supreme Court had also issued a similar letter with similar precautions, and so they were moving um, and, had, and were in the process of reducing their populations. And then it, that, that partnership with the, the uh, union for the 
for the youth services employees was a, was a good connection to make out of that also. Yeah, it was great um, to build a partnership with uh, the union uh, for the DYS workers and hear their um, stories and struggles, and particularly around COVID, you know, they're going back and forth to their families. Um, and so it'd be hard to come into an environment where, you know, more than half of the kids have been infected and then leave out and go to your family and okay. expose them. Yeah. So we, we did finally get the meeting with the Division of Youth Services. Uh, when did that happen? Kind of what, what's developed from there? Uh, that meeting happened on uh, June 30th, uh, at the end of June, and I would say there's a couple of things that we, that happened in that meeting. One, we did establish that there was a need for transparency around the COVID numbers, what was happening in there, and it, and it, and it seemed at least from a protocol standpoint that they had gotten some things under control. The numbers had been going down. Uh, the number of active infections had been going down. And now they are posting uh, the information, not only for the Hogan Street, but for all their centers on their website uh, to keep them accountable about their policies and protocols around COVID-19 inside the centers. Okay. Uh, I think, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. And, and then uh, how many are still active cases right now? It looked like at the last check, about eight kids still had active cases um, at that time and that they were doing best they could, I guess, to initiate uh, protocols to keep other kids from being reinfected. And at least by the, the look of the numbers, that was that was beginning to work at Hogan Street. Okay, good. And do we have any word about the others who had contracted infection? Um, I, I what has happened to them, if we know, or or their health situation? Uh, our understanding about the kids, anyway, um, is that the kids had fully recovered. Uh, you know, they were able to stay there. None of the kids were hospitalized. Our understanding is that there was a worker, though, however, that had to be hospitalized uh, around uh, the COVID situation. And so, so far, the kids have been okay. And, and all of this is part of a broader discussion we're trying to have with the Department of Youth Services about alternatives to facilities like this. Can you talk about the direction that we're trying to, to have DYS uh, move towards? Yeah, I think, you know, this is part of sort of a regional conversation on decarceration models um, around the country. Um, here in St. Louis, we've, been talking, we've talked about it most broadly as close the workhouse, um, but there's a, a movement broadly um, around divestment and investment in, in incarceration systems and jails. And DYS uh, falls into that category as well as detention centers, the amount of money and resources that are put into those places uh, that can be better used and according to Safely Home and some other um, project, pilot projects and can be used more effectively to treat um, and help kids that are even deeper into the system. So kids that have more serious charges and more complex needs, it's already been shown that uh, we can effectively meet their needs and keep the, them and the community safe. Um, and so it's, it's a rethinking of the model that a kid has to be away from their family, away from their school, away from their support. They have to go away to this institution to get help. And then they return brand new sort of to the community and that they're fine and good to go. Uh, it instead says that we have to build the infrastructure for support in the community where the kid is going to be long term. Um, and then we have to make sure that that infrastructure is sustainable. And that means divestment for some, from some of these institutions and DYS would be in that category. Okay. And 
where where are they falling right now in that discussion? Where is DYS falling in that discussion? Are they open to it? Are they resistant? What, what's kind of going on with that? Definitely from that meeting, it was clear that they're open to that conversation and, and that they've had um, some version of that conversation among their community partners and relationships. And our ask uh, to them is that, one, that conversation become public. And so we've asked them to come to our public meeting on July 19th uh, to make to, to kind of say to the community, this is where we stand with COVID. We, we commit to transparency around COVID-19 and the kids. And two, we commit to have a community conversation about, uh, about community care and community-based services for the kids that are committed to the Division of Youth Services. And I think you had mentioned before we'd start our conversation that they're part of a bigger structure and apparatus that, that they're working within too. Right. I mean, right, rightly so. They are, you know, one part of sort of the peg in uh, the juvenile justice system um, in the state of Missouri. There's 43 or so jurisdictions that commit kids across the state to the Division of Youth Services. Uh, So you have the courts, you have the police, uh, you have judges, you have deputy juvenile officers. Um, you have the off, uh, you have this uh, court administrators, and so all of those entities are part of shaping uh, what happens, how DYS is funded, and uh, how it's deployed in in Missouri. And so those entities need to be convened uh, around this issue. So DYS can be an entry into to getting to these these other actors too, and bringing more more people in. Absolutely. And we already have relationships, at least with, you know, the courts and the juvenile detention centers. And so, um, you know, we're ready to have that conversation. And the centers are in a pilot right now around the Safely Home Initiative and campaign. And so they are have had this conversation in depth and have taken the next step to begin a pilot about what that would look like um, to be implemented in city and county. So it's definitely time for DYS to be invited into that conversation and for the community to have a central voice in that conversation as well. It seems like this process is a, is a reminder that this effort is, is a long-term process. Um, and that, but that action does start, does start to move the needle a little bit. Uh, we're not where we want to be, but we're farther than we were in, in March when the, the letter came. Do you have any reflections on, on that and just sort of the scope of, of, of what we're doing? Yeah. Uh, I mean, ultimately, our goal is to make sure that communities have the infrastructure they need to support kids uh, and, com- and keep the community safe. Uh, and we believe that uh, there's, there, there has not been community voice and youth and family voice in the middle of these conversations the way that they need to be. Um, and MCU is about amplifying their voices in the middle of this um, so that we get to some solutions that actually work and that are sustainable for the community. And so we look forward um, to continue to center youth and family voice um, in these conversations of decarceration and decriminalization, uh, particularly of Black youth in the state of Missouri. Okay. And, and speaking of centering on families, uh, remind us again, uh, our program on Tuesday evenings, the, the parents meeting. What is that? Who's involved in that? Yeah, on Tuesdays nights, we have what we call a participatory defense meeting. Uh, our juvenile justice team meets Tuesday nights at six o'clock. If you are a parent 
that has a kid who is involved in the courts, in the juvenile uh, justice system in some way. They might be at DYS, they may be at a court-ordered residential treatment, or they might be in the detention center. We encourage you to text love youth, pound love youth, to 31996. And that is the way that we'll connect and reach out to you and invite you to get care and support um, as you navigate the juvenile justice system in our community. We want to be partners to support you um, if that's something that you need and you want. Again, text Love Youth to 31996 and we'll be happy to reach out and bring you into that meeting on Tuesday nights at six. Okay. And in broad terms, what... and pardon me if I say this wrong, but is this this is a support group, but this is also um, an empowerment of, of action for the parents, too, uh, of showing them the power they have, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, honestly, you come in there, we're working on cases usually. So parents who have some issues um, that they are trying to move or a lot of times just get their voices and their perspectives heard. Um, around what's happening with them, ch- their children in the juvenile justice system. We support those parents um, in making sure their voices are heard and amplified uh, in, in, in the system and supporting them um, as they do that. And so that's what, making sure they know their rights, making sure that uh, they understand what's happening and who the actors are in the system. A lot of times the parents are very confused about what's going on, what letters they're getting, what they mean. And so it's a lot of interpretation and support and um, helping the parent find their voice, their perspective, and then helping them to amplify that and get that in the middle of um, the decision making uh, around their children. Okay. And any other uh, thoughts on on our actions with the DYS or or the court system before we move on to another topic? I think that's it for now. I think, you know, just ask the community to um, stay with us um, as we begin to shape a campaign around Safely Home uh, and to begin to uh, name Um, a youth budget for Missouri um, and for our region and what we want to defund so that we can fund um, community-based programs for kids who have been court involved. And that would be budget at the state and local level? Correct. Okay. All right. Um, Related to this, uh, one of our other project, or part of our our larger project is uh, eliminating the school to prison pipeline. Uh, One of the actions we're going to have on uh, of that is taking place on July 11th. By the time the listeners hear this, we'll be past that date. Um, we're calling it Children's March on, on July 11th. What are some of the things we're highlighting and demanding uh, and expressing through this action? Absolutely. Uh, the the Children's March is uh, the work of the Keep Kids in Class Coalition Uh is, which is a coalition of organizations across the St. Louis region who have been working broadly on school discipline, asking for trauma-informed care, asking for robust memorandums of understanding around police. Uh, but the conversation has evolved. And so we are pushing a new set of demands and a platform to remove police from school, to uh, require that lawyers are present uh, when police are present, to make sure that Police are wearing body cameras, right, when they're interacting with students, which is not happening. And then again, uh, to, to divest and invest, to reinvest monies from these police contracts into counselors and teachers and student care, again, to continue rep- 
training around anti-racism and trauma, and finally to require the institutionalization of Black studies. Uh, we know that Black studies is, is not happening um, in a lot of our schools, and we think that that's an important part of um, our region gaining racial equity. Okay, and who are some of the other organizations that are uh, uh, partnering with us on this on this particular event? Absolutely. Um, so the part of the Kids Coalition are some folks like Fourth through Ferguson, ACLU of Missouri, Red Circle, We Can, the West County Action Network. Uh, those are some of that's a handful of uh, some of the partners that we work with um, in the Keep Kids in Class Coalition. Okay. And it feels like there's new energy behind activism in, in the country and in the region right now. Um, can you talk about how that's kind of shaped um, how we're doing events like this? Yeah, I think definitely, you know, the killing of George Floyd uh, and some of the, the, the organizing that happened, particularly around moving police from schools in the city of Minneapolis um, and the movement uh, to clearly uh, cast a different vision of policing in our communities in an actionable way is affecting the organizing work of all of us across the country to dream big, to push bolder uh, around uh, things that we have been talking about and dreaming about, but haven't really had bold vision about. Um, and so this event and sort of the reshaping of the Keep Kids in Class uh, platform is definitely one of those moments where we've been asking sort of for reform around police practices in schools and uh, realizing that we want something bolder and brighter, which is just to remove the police from the schools. Um, community can always call the police um, when they're needed at a school for an emergency, but to take those resources and invest them uh, in the lack of funding for teachers, my God, and for counselors and for so many other things that schools need right now. And I, I know teachers are glad to hear that because that that's almost the, the first thought that they have is what about us um, and and us advocating for teachers and, and partnering with them is, is a good thing for the system as a, as a whole. Yeah, it's really important that um, teachers are well-funded, well-trained, and well-supported. Um, and we're definitely advocates of uh, teachers uh, being supported as they supply our kids with the world-class education. And our other event that's coming up on July 19th is our annual public meeting. It's obviously got to be a little different this year because we can't gather in one place and, yeah. and, and sing together. Uh, so tell us about uh, what's happening differently this year and what we're focusing on at this event. So it's July 19th at 3 p.m. It's a virtual public meeting. And so you kind of sign up when you come on virtually. But the, the, the theme of the public meeting is the ballot at the lynching tree. And it really is to talk about sort of the oppression and suppression of, of voting uh, and the importance of some of the ballot initiatives that we've worked on as MCU and others in the community, lifting up um, sort of our, our voter engagement work in the community and making sure folks are ready uh, for what's coming up in August and November. Uh, and turning our eyes sort of to our electoral power in the community. And so, you know, that's sort of what the, the meeting is about. So we're excited uh, to make sure folks are ready and educated and supported to act uh, as we need to head to the polls uh, to also uh, demonstrate our power. And as you mentioned, that is something that folks need to register for. So uh, the website, MC 
mcustlewis.org and our Facebook page are the best places to get information about that to sign up. Um, and the issues, uh, our biggest electoral issues are yes on two on August 4th and no on three on November 3rd. That's a lot of numbers to, to jumble around, but we're talking about Medicaid expansion in August and then saying no to uh, undoing clean Missouri in November. Um, especially that Medicaid expansion really has an impact on our communities and, and affects sort of this health and well-being of, of children in our society that we've been talking about the rest of the program. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we're in the middle of COVID. I think it's it's made it clear why we need equity in healthcare and access. Uh, that if some of us are not well, we're all going to be affected. Um, and so I think we we finally get that message, and we understand why we need to make sure the most vulnerable among us are protected. Because if they're not protected, none of us are protected. And so uh, let's do the right thing. Expand Medicaid. It only makes sense. And then our final um, sort of legislative push um, is Unlock the Vote. Tell us a little bit about Unlock the Vote and what we're looking for in, in the following legislative session. Yes. So Unlock the Vote uh, is legislation that was introduced last year that got ended just because of COVID, but it was actually moving pretty well through the legislator. Um, is to restore voting rights uh, to folks in Missouri on papers, on probation or parole. Um, in Missouri, you cannot vote until you are off of probation and parole. Uh, and so we want to change that in the state of Missouri, that as soon as folks get out, that they are able, even on probation and parole, they're paying taxes on probation and parole. Uh, so while they're paying taxes and regaining their lives, that they also uh, regain that, abil that ability to be civically engaged in the electoral process. And so that's what Unlock the Vote is about. We'll uh, be reintroducing uh, that bill in the new session and we're in the works of finding a new sponsor. Um, as um, Jamila Nasheed's term has ended and she was the senator carrying that bill. Okay, great. And uh, just I, I want to give a little bit of, of sort of background to public meetings, if those listening aren't familiar with it, sort of what what are our goals in public meetings and, and what do we try to accomplish? It's 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 not just um, a, a listing of, of grievances, if you will, but there's there's a very specific energy that it, that is developed in a public meeting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it's always important to talk about public meetings sort of in, in three ways. One, you know, it's about the people sort of demonstrating their power. So it's a call for the community to say, hey, we care about this particular issue. In this case, uh, we're gathering and demonstrating our power around electoral issues and voter suppression. And so if you care about electoral power, this is a meeting where you show up to say this is important. This is um, imp uh, this is critical for our community. Second is really about targets. Uh, we want to we make sure that we actually move policymakers uh, to be accountable. Uh, to s commit uh, to, to move things forward. And so you always see a feature in our public meeting of commitments of public officials uh, demonstrating their um, ability and their accountability in public uh, to move uh, the work forward. And so you always see sort of at least those kind of two things, a, a, a demonstration of our community power and the push uh, to hold public officials accountable around a set of policy issues and those mostly central this time on electoral power. 
And it, at some public meetings in the past, we've had our, our policymakers in attendance and they, they, they feel energized and, and moved by the, the amount of, of energy and, and push that are coming from everybody um, involved. Uh, on, on virtual, uh, on our virtual meeting, um, what, what kind of things are we putting in place to sort of have that presence so, so that our policymakers can feel that? Yeah, I think, you know, Facebook Live can kind of add a little bit of that sense of sort of the larger community watching, the larger community being in the room. And so that's why it's important for you to share it out and get people to watch it and view it and comment and note uh, so that those who are in the meeting sort of get a sense that, okay, this is important to the community. The community cares about what I'm saying and what I'm committing to. Uh, So, you know, definitely showing your presence even virtually you know, as we share the meeting, it will be important uh, to demonstrate our power. Okay, great. So please do sign up, show up, share, uh, enjoy. Um, we look forward to, to seeing everyone uh, checking in at, at the public meeting. So thank you, Reverend Baker, for joining us this afternoon. I appreciate you taking your time to do this. And as a reminder, Reverend Baker is the organizer for the MCU's Break the Pipeline campaign. To learn more about MCU, to sign up for a public meeting, to become more involved, go to our website at mcustlewis.org. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. I'm Kevin Prang, and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening. 